Sir, sir. We release a new episode every other week. Uh, just hop on the mic, it's important. I'm sorry we don't release new episodes every single week. Well, what's your name, sir? Dupree. Dupree, that's a good name. I'm, I'm in a bit of a fix. My, I don't have a social life and I want to record more often. I figure we can talk about some more popular topics. You know, like Spielberg, Tom Hanks, Amy Adams, Christopher Walken, Martin Sheen, or Leonardo DiCaprio. I'm sorry, but there's no way that all those people are in the same movie and we only record every other week. Dupree, does this copy of Catch Me If You Can belong to you? I found it in the parking lot. Must have slipped right off your neck. fell into a bucket of cream. The first mouse quickly gave up and drowned. Second mouse wouldn't quit. He struggled so hard that eventually he'd churn that cream into butter and crawled out. Gentlemen, as of this moment, I am that second mouse. Welcome to Is It Really? The podcast that challenges popular opinions about movies. I'm Barry Allen. I'm Dr. Frank Connors. And I'm Tom Hanks. And tonight we're talking about Catch Me If You Can and asking, why are crooks so cool? Mitch, why don't you give us the plot of Catch Me If You Can? Frank Abagnale Jr. is just a kid and life is a nightmare. After the divorce of his parents, Frank decides to run away from home and start his life. He gets a taste for the lifestyles of the rich and famous, and like Pringles, once you pop, you just can't stop. His criminal activities eventually earn the attention of FBI agent Carl Hanratty. The chase is on, but can Carl catch Frank? So this movie takes criminal activity and makes it look cool. In real life, crime is bad. (laughs) Yeah. How do these types of movies achieve that level of coolness? And I think there is no movie that does it better than Ocean's Eleven. In the world of the Ocean's movie, the criminal rules the world. Yeah, yeah. And I think the biggest theme running through these types of movies is if you're smart enough or smooth enough, you can steal all the money you need and look good doing it. Right. You you don't need to work hard for your riches you just need to find that way to kind of beat the system. And Zach already has an area he'd like to push back. <laughs> I mean, look, I don't condone a life of crime, but it's not easy in these movies. They're pulling off these very <laughs> elaborate jobs. You see Leo has to buy all those toy airplanes to get those Pan Am stickers. You see that okay. he has to like study for the bar exam. It's not easy, Brandon. I think my point is, what is the quickest path to riches? And I would agree with that. No, I disagree. Your clarification made me disagree with you more. I I don't think they choose the path because of its easiness. I think they choose the life of the con because it's who they are in in a sense. It's, It's just they are equipped for this kind of lifestyle. I think what I would have agreed with if you'd said it, Brandon, was they make it look easy. It's not easy, but it looks easy. 
Let's pretend I said that. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember when Brandon said that they make it look easy. I think that's part of how they achieve that level of coolness is that these are guys who also seem like they could solve any of your problems. Like they're almost like superheroes in a weird sense. No, they are the superheroes of, yeah, of movies. If you don't include all those superhero movies. <laughs> As soon as it came out of my mouth, I was like, that's a dumb thing you just said. <laughs> Another movie I'd like to talk about is The Wolf of Wall Street, which is more about corporate shadiness. These are not cons. These are the devil. They are bad, bad men. I'd say the difference for me about the crime in The Wolf of Wall Street is it doesn't look cool in The Wolf of Wall Street. Right. It's the stuff they buy that looks yes. cool. It's their lifestyle right. that seems cool. Like, oh, I want to date Margot Robbie. That seems cool. But the people are awful. The whole yes. point is, look how terrible they are. And I think it's, it is very much those types of movies, because there's plenty of movies where the people stealing stuff don't seem cool. This might be a little niche, but there's the movie 21, where it's kind of they take this character who's not cool, who's kind of a loser back home, and he gets to live this fake life by going to Vegas every weekend and pretend to be somebody else. So there, there are some movies that do that. And then you have some movies like Being John Malkovich, which is kind of a heist movie, and none of those characters are cool at all. Yeah, but even in 21, they get the montage where they buy all the cool stuff. Exactly. They're succeeding. Their whole system seems cool. They're like they have their numbers and they're rehearsing. So I still think the heist element of it is portrayed in a cool, cool. way. Right, right. I also feel like it really depends on the crime they're committing. Mm. If we're just talking about criminals in general. The heist movies are the ones that look cool. Criminals possibly selling drugs. It may start out cool, doesn't always end cool, like a Scarface type movie. Right. Yeah, where's the cool movie about a murderer? That does not exist yet. Absolutely. That is not something that is praised or looked upon with, you know, rose-colored glasses. I think about a movie like The Town, where it really just feels mm. heavy, like the cost of crime. Yeah, when that TV show Lucifer came out, I mm. thought to myself, oh, are they going to have someone being really bad and portray it like as cool and sultry? Nah, he's just a pansy. So it, it bummed me out a little bit. I kind of wanted to see something more interesting. I think I like Dexter, too, but it's not cool. He's just interesting. Right. You know? Breaking Bad is not cool. Yeah, just interesting. Right. None of them are George Clooney. Right. Brandon, though, you hit the nail on the head. Crime is bad. And I really, <laughs> you know, a big part of these movies is that eventually, you know, your luck runs out and then all of a sudden it's not so cool anymore. So, you know, I would say to anyone listening, if these movies inspire you to commit crimes, I would simply say, if you can't do the time, don't commit the crime. Hands on your head. You know that's the new IBM Selectric. Put your hands on your head. Print type in five seconds. Shut up! Out the ball. Put your hands on your head. Put your hands. You know he's got over two hundred checks here. Hands on your head. Drafting. He even has little payroll envelopes addressed to himself. Put it down. Drop it. Relax. You're late. All right. My name is Alan Barry Allen, United States Secret Service. Your boy just tried to. Jump out the window. My partner has him in custody. I don't know what you're talking about. What, you think the FBI are the only ones on this guy? I mean, come on. 
Come on, he's dabbling in government checks here. I've been following a paper trail on this guy for months now. Hey, you, you mind taking that gun out of my face? Please, really. I mean, it makes me nervous. We see some credentials. Yeah, sure. Take my whole wallet. What I like about this scene is it's about his confidence. He's able to pull all this off because DiCaprio has confidence. So he walks in and as soon as he leaves the bathroom, he just jumps into a character and he never. Yeah. It's like he's playing poker with him, right? He never sways. He never hints that he's not who he says he is. Uh, so he right. just stares him down. And Hanks isn't the poker player that DiCaprio is. He, he just he wins. Right. I think one thing that's interesting is he completely ignores the gun in his face and just continues to move on and basically does not give Carl Hanratty a chance to even think he is spinning this story. Mm -hmm. And it isn't until Frank Jr. leaves the room and Carl sits on the bed and then he's like, oh, maybe I'll pop this wallet open. Frank Jr. takes a couple gambles in the room. First of all, he hands him his wallet. Uh Right. And he calls down to his neighbor and upon like a little further investigation by Carl, I think he could have unraveled some of the inaccuracies here. Well, what I noticed this time is when he gives him the wallet, as soon as he does, that's when he directs him to the window. He's not going to give him the time to actually look through it. Uh, So he's, he's smart about it. And also he has a wallet ready to hand the guy that has, as we find out, nothing in it. Almost like a magician directing your attention to something else while mm-hmm. the magic is happening over here, the big misdirect. I love that he just can't help leaving the wallet behind. I love how right. he says to him, you hang on to it. Yeah, because if he took it back, it may have taken Hanratty a little bit longer to realize he'd been duped. But he wants right. him to look out the window and see that he's been had. Absolutely, absolutely. And again, you know, it's back to that coolness of crime. It's it's like the wink at the end of the heist, you know? It's yeah. that Danny Ocean card that you leave for someone. Or Ace Ventura. And, yeah, and I would... Please don't tag on Ace Ventura. <laughs> Where did that I come from? Totally In Ace Ventura, he leaves the fake dog for the guy, and there's the card that says, you've been had by Ace Ventura. Sometimes okay. I think you say things just to check that I'm listening to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, but later some of the more powerful scenes for me with these two characters are the phone calls at christmas oh yeah and i would just juxtapose this early frank where he's a little bit cocky and he's enjoying the thrill of the chase a lot more where later mm-hmm. he's yeah. begging for the chase to stop please stop chasing me i want to be done but he wants to rub it in, in tom hanks's face right you're calling me because you got no one on Christmas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that airtight impression. <laughs> I thought he was mean the first time I watched the movie. And he me said too. That. I was like, that's too. Yeah, that's too much. But then you realize that Handwriting is also alone on Christmas, yeah. essentially. I think he's getting serious amusement out of the fact that he has maybe a mental edge or he's found some type of. Mm. crevasse to pry open with Frank Jr.'s character. There's a weakness here. He's lonely. Another scene that I love is when they're on the plane together and Tom Hanks, Carl Handwriting says to Frank Jr., he goes, how'd you pass the bar exam? And he goes, I'll tell you what, if you give me half that eclair, I'll tell you. And he just takes Mm -hmm. that huge bite of the eclair. 
I mean, yeah. it's so good. And it just speaks volumes about like his character. You know what I mean? Yeah, he won't compromise at all. It's I don't want to get it by a cop out. I want to beat you. I don't want you to know how bad I want to know the answer to this question. Mm-hmm. So right. I'm going to stuff my face right now. I think also one thing that is very important about this relationship, if you just if we just focus on the actors themselves for a minute. Yes. You know, you have you have Leo and you have Tom, two very famous actors. Mm. I think, you know, I really have to commend Tom Hanks in. I mean, Leo is great. Yes. I really have to commend Tom Hanks in this movie and how he really he plays this character really well, but yes. for the most part, st- like stands back and really lets Leo shine mm. and lets this become DiCaprio's movie. He takes a back seat in many ways, and it's a strong movie because of that. Absolutely, yeah, I would agree. Leo, to me, he, he just has this mischief going on, and as I like, he he seems a little bit snaky. It's funny because Walken and DiCaprio. If you told me they they were going to play father and son, I would be like, that is the most bizarre pairing I've ever heard. (laughs) But they both have this kind of snaky thing going on. And I love the moments where DiCaprio switches from like this baby face person to, like I mentioned, like more of a poker player. There's really just a lot going on in that performance. Then there's like these moments, these bursts of like insecurity and panic because he's a kid. Like that's the, the whole thrust of his performance. He's playing a child who's pretending to be an adult, like a big, right. a big player. Right. And you also, you see that from walking a little bit too. Like uh, again, mm-hmm. Mitch, these are two characters who love to steal and, and commit crimes and, and break the, the law. But you have the one scene where um, Leo says to walk I bought you a car and like, you know, here's all this money. Now you can go get mom back. And you just see mm-hmm. like, you know, and walking's eyes all of a sudden that, you know, adulthood washes over him you know the movie's called catch me if you can but it's not just carl Handratty who's chasing people you know you have leo who's kind of running away from the fact that his his family is broken like literally he runs out the door you have everybody's running away mm-hmm. from from something else in the movie yeah and i think that speaks to the father-son relationship with the movie as well like this movie is just about a lost boy who ran away from home essentially right, yeah. that's the heart of it This is the best Peter Pan we have. It is the best Peter Pan movie. I thought that, too. And this is a Spielberg movie, too. So I thought to myself, this is the good version of Hook. Right. Uh, I agree. Oh, yeah. Well, I haven't seen Hook. I'm just saying based on the reception. You're right. (laughs) Uh, But I think it was a personal movie for Spielberg because he in several other movies kind of is trying to chronicle this father-son relationship that's was something in his personal life that I think he was kind of wrestling with. Well, I think Hook is the good version of Hook, but that's neither here nor there. That was a good retort. (laughs) I like that. I think one thing that's very interesting is the way this movie starts out and kind of the relationship that Frank Sr. and Jr. have and just kind of the way the picture Mm. that Frank Sr. is continuously painting for Frank Jr. Everything has his sugar-coated version applied to it. Dad, how could you let him take our car? You know, you know, whatever. They overpaid by 500. We took them. Everything was just made to seem a little better than it was. You right. know? Yeah. It reminded me of Willie Loman and Death of a Salesman a little bit, where there's mm-hmm. this fatal flaw in the character of just the way he perceives the world is not totally on, you know, it's not right. I think Watkins' character is really concerned with 
admiration and respect and how you're seen and viewed. So, Zach, you brought up that scene in the in the restaurant. Uh, I think it's really interesting that he never gives Leo the respect the way Leo wants, because I think he kind of knows his game. I think he knows he's a con from the from the get go. Uh, but when everyone in the restaurant starts looking at Frank and admiring him, that's when Walken's character starts to get choked up and sort of look at my son. You know, where are you going tonight? That's when he starts to respect them in right. his own way. He's just a fascinating character. It's almost like, you know, early in the movie, there's that scene when Walken says two little mice fell into a bucket of cream. And then he says, I am that mouse. But it's almost like in this scene, Walken acknowledges that his son is now the one who has churned the cream into butter while he's kind of drowning. Yeah, it's a great reversal. Crime is not cool. What is it about this movie that people really love? And I think one thing for me right off the bat is the pacing of the movie. Yes. I really feel like it is just superbly paced. Yeah. And the accompanying score really just plays it out beautifully. It's kind of fast paced. It almost makes you feel like you need to stand up while you're watching the movie or something. Like Mm -hmm. it doesn't lull you into any type of security. It's unsettling. But it's a very beautiful piece of music. Right. And also you just have that script with just that dialogue that, you know, I think all the characters are so well realized and the dialogue is so good. And unfortunately, the screenwriter Jeff Nathanson would go on to pen the live action Lion King. But this was his moment to shine. Yeah, Brandon, I mean, to your point of the pacing, like it just feels like this is one of Spielberg's more charming movies to me because it's like very relaxed. Like, it's not like trying to wring tears out of me. It's just funny. It's breezy. It kind of just like bobs along the way that Frank does. Yeah. And also the movie changes up every 30 minutes. Like at the beginning, it seems like, oh, it's a nice movie about a family. Then it's like, oh, it's about a guy on a plane. Oh, it's like a nice love story. Now it's like a courtroom drama. Now it's like there's some every time the movie starts to feel like it's going to get a little stale. Then all of a sudden there'll be a shot of Carl and long haired Frank sitting next to each other. Yeah, yeah, this movie has like five acts. If I actually have one complaint, is it's the same complaint Spielberg movies always get. There's too many endings. I like where it ends up, but it just it ends three times. It's like Lord of the Rings. But I like that there are those five acts of like, here's him doing this. Here's him doing that. It keeps it moving. Right. I'll tell you what my favorite moment in the movie is, is um, when Carl says to Frank, I'm going to let you go in that scene when he's violating his parole and he's going to get on the plane and do that. And Carl's like, I'm going to let you go and you're going to be back in the office on Monday. Mm -hmm. And I love that scene where you see it on Carl's face. He has that minute of, uh Oh, and then Frank just walks in and like answers their question. And then the credits roll. And it's like, these guys are friends now. And it's kind of like, Oh, yeah, yeah. That's actually a cool reversal of the scene we discussed in the last block of like in that scene, Carl is the one who kind of puts up his bluff. You know what I mean? Like he's able to out confidence Leo. Absolutely. Well, one of the other factors for me, you know, we say crime is not cool. It's not. It's not the crime that I think is portrayed as cool. It's the world. This is the world where there's like martinis and, the, you know, and there's napkins with fancy buttonholes and they're like we rolling down the roast beef down the aisle of the plane. Like it's 
you know, people going dressing up like they're going to church in Atlanta when they're going to the airport. <laughs> it's just a whole different vibe. And I think they definitely take some great lengths to glamorize this time period. And I would absolutely agree. And it makes me jealous because going to the airport today is a freaking nightmare. Well, crime is not fun. <laughs> is Catch Me If You Can trying to say something or just be a fun movie? I think what stands out to me is Frank's continuous attempts to put his family back together. He wakes up one day and his loving parents don't love each other anymore. And his perfect family is split in two. And I feel like the rest of the movie, we see Frank either trying to earn enough money to put his family back together and get his mom back and restore his dad's dignity. Or when he becomes a doctor and he attempts to build his own family at that point, he kind of moves on like he's not trying to restore his old family, you know, his with his parents. He's trying to build that next family that he can be a part of. But I think at its core, it's a fun movie. Right. I do think Catch Me If You Can is trying to say something. I think that the message is no matter how much fun you are having breaking federal law, you will be caught and convicted. This joy is not sustainable. Jeez. No, I think I think that what the movie is saying actually is, you know, it looks like he's having a lot of fun. But then there's yeah. that scene when he's talking to Martin Sheen and he's saying to him, like, you know, look, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a pilot. I'm just a guy who loves your daughter. And I think you realize Frank doesn't know who he is. He's a guy mm. pretending to be everybody else at the cost of his soul. Yeah, and to hit on what Brandon was saying a little bit, I think despite the glamour and excitement of the world that Frank is kind of traipsing through, it feels mm -hmm. like he would have traded it all for just like companionship and yeah, not having right. to, to fake anything. And I actually listened to the Google talk that the real Frank Abagnale gave. And he, in it, he uh, lets us know he like lives in Tulsa now and he, you know, just like as a family man. And I think when I was younger, I probably would have looked down on that and been like, oh, what a lame end to a cool guy's story. But now I really do feel like, wow, that's a really beautiful ending to, you know, this man's life where before he was living in this turmoil of not having a family and now he has what he wanted. Right. Finally, the man told the truth and stopped breaking the law and that set him free. That's the message of the movie. The truth shall set you free. Crime is not fun. Uh, you're being awful demonstrative tonight. Yes. <laughs> I just don't want like kids to listen to our show and be like, you know, it sounds like a good idea. International fraud. No well, one. That's not the I, message I think, of the movie, though. Yeah. The, the message of the movie is honestly crime is cool. And like there has never been as bleak a workplace as the FBI offices when he walks in and says, you know, how long do I have to work here, Carl? Because it's just it looks suffocating, it looks awful. So I, I understand why he wants to get on the plane. At first glance, my initial thought is, oh, this isn't that bad. He got to do all this stuff, commit all these crimes, and he pretty much got let off the hook. No, this actually may be worse. This is like getting to see the pool on a hot summer's day, but not getting to jump in. Mm -hmm. You get a taste of freedom with absolutely still being a prisoner. Yeah. Right. 
And especially when you consider the government is the bad guy in Frank's history. You said he's trying to get all this this money back. He's getting he's getting it back because the government took everything from his father. And right. his father was a criminal, right? He defrauded the government. Mm-hmm. From, <laughs> thank you, Zach. But from <laughs> Frank's perspective, the government is probably, you know, the, the enemy in some respects. Yeah, that's tricky. We don't know too much about what his problems were with the IRS, but I do I do think you're right. They symbolize everything that broke his family apart. This is why he doesn't see his mom anymore. But I also think it's I think it's very interesting how quickly his mom kind of moves on. It's just a very interesting take on kind of that mother relationship and what kind of mother she was. She tries to fix his problems. You know, let me write a check. He comes home early one day, catches her with the man and she's like, here's some money. Go, you know, go buy yourself, like c- tries to cover things up. And I right. feel like when he comes and like finds her house, her new house and mm-hmm. looks in the window and he realizes that's not his mom anymore. You know, she's yeah. someone else's mom. Yeah. There's another mm-hmm. there's a there's a new family and he's not a part of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that when he calls Carl also? He doesn't call him. No, at the very end, the they, the cops show up behind him. But he does say, yeah, you know, right. get me in the car. I've got to get out of here. I'm going to be sick. It's right. It's too much because, you know, then he's forced to realize what you just said, Brandon, that he's not a part of his mom's family anymore. It is interesting to me in real life. When Frank ran away, neither of his parents communicated with him again. They didn't want anything to do with him. Of course. Uh, so, yeah, right. Which is which is interesting. And when... The book that Frank wrote that became this movie came out. You know, he said a lot of it was dramatized. A lot of it was inaccurate. But when the movie came out, Frank said, the elements with the dad may not have actually happened to me, but I think Spielberg's getting at like a deeper truth, right, of why I did my running. Uh, And it was all driven because of my need for family. So it's interesting how the, the movies can tell, you know, the more true aspects of our lives. Right. Um, Just a question, Mitch. Do you know if like Frank, the real Frank, isn't like bitter about the movie being inaccurate, though, is he? No, 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 not at all. I love that. No. Yeah. Just understand it's a story. Yeah, exactly. I can understand that, you know, if they kind of breezed over something that he felt was tragic. But, you know, it's a fun movie that's taking liberties. So for that, I like that he's look, it's not 100 percent accurate, but who cares? Like that makes me happy. I actually really love his response to he wrote on his website when the when the book finally became a movie. He said, I just want to be clear. I thought this would be a good idea to write this book when I was much younger than I am now. And I was romanticizing the time. But now I regret all the pain I caused to my country and all of the harm I did. So, you know, as exciting as the movie may depict those parts of my life, I do regret those times. Uh, And I thought that was just a really responsible thing to say as people go in to watch the movie. We should regret all crime. I'm out. (laughs) So where do you see Spielberg's signature on this film? This isn't a jab at the movie, but if you told me that anyone else directed this movie, I'd probably be like, yeah, okay. Because I don't, I mean, aside from the fact that the movie's good, I don't really see Spielberg's signature anywhere. Oh, I, I really disagree. Okay. First of all, it's a movie about troubled lives and fractured homes, which is a, a Spielberg staple. 
Sure. You know, throughout his career, like absent fathers are really omnipresent from movies like Close Encounters to E.T. to Indiana Jones, even yeah, Hook. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's all about daddy issues. And what we know about Spielberg's personal life is his dad was a workaholic. Uh, and he's described his mom as like a real Peter Pan type, right? Who never grew up. And I know that in Spielberg's personal life, when his he was 19, his parents split and his father left. And uh, that really hit him hard. So I think that's something that I see in this movie is Catch Me If You Can as a movie about escapism. And I think I think there are some direct analogs that we could probably draw. You know, movies could have been an escape for Spielberg in the way that the cons were an escape for Frank. Well, I really like that, Mitch. I honestly, I went a little more shallow with my thoughts. And I think I was just focusing on maybe the look of the movie. That's what I was wondering about. Well, I love what Mitch said. Honestly, that that takes it to a whole other level for me. But, you know, I'm thinking with Spielberg, I'm used to these large adventure epics with beautiful scores and Mm. animatronics. And this, to me, feels like a breath of fresh air to that Spielberg filmography. Just something you can really hang your hat on kind of in the middle, like in the middle or like later in your career where you've done all the big you've done the Jurassic Parks and the ETs and, you know, all of those big movies. And this this is like big in just a whole other way. And it is just as great as those movies. Right. Mm. Well, you you also hear stories about how there were other directors who were going to do Catch Me If You Can. But Spielberg really wanted it because he also claimed that, like, he needed a break. Here were the the three films that preceded Catch Me If You Can from Spielberg. Saving Private Ryan, AI Artificial Intelligence, which... I mean, I can't imagine what it was like to direct that movie. Minority Report and then Catch Me If You Can. So basically, you've done like a very serious war drama. You're directing a film that your deceased friend wrote. And then you're doing this big action movie. I'm sure this must have just been like, (sighs) we can relax. Which is why, for me personally, I don't see a lot of those Spielberg isms in the way that the film is like shot and directed. But at the same time, I think that's why this movie feels so light and breezy. Well, I think we need to come to grips with the fact that the movies that defined his early filmography are not all he has given us. And they're sure. in fact, you know, they're they may be the most iconic, but they're not even a majority of what he's given us. Like when I think Spielberg, you're right. Like he is synonymous with like movies that make us feel like kids, right now, like those kind of things. But he entered, you know, a different part of his career with the, those movies you just mentioned, with Minority Report, with this, with War of the Worlds, stuff like that. The Terminal, like, Munich. Yeah, like this Indiana is the more Jones serious. 4. I feel like this is him trying to grow up a little bit, right? And sure. uh, yeah. and that's with varying success. But I like that he was going for it, you know, taking risks and trying something new. Mm-hmm. I think that is the telltale signs of someone trying to evolve and someone trying to adapt to, you know, different times. It's almost like the, the kiddie movies are his cons, if he were Frank. And oh. then like Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is like him trying to get on that plane again. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> oh, that, like we, we know you're not perfect. going anywhere. <laughs> we know you're not going anywhere. Oh, <laughs> you'll naked. be back. Yeah, you'll be back. We know you are. Man, I wanted to like that so much. We all did. We all, we all did. <laughs> Thank you.
So how'd you get busted? Who, me? Just being a smooth criminal. I stole some things, conned some people, things like that. Wow, that sounds despicable. People must really hate you. Nah, everyone loves me. Well, why would they? You're a criminal. Yeah, but look at my clothes, look at my house, listen to how I'm talking. I'm cool. But the crimes you've committed are not cool. But I'm cool. That's the thing. I can be selling vacuum cleaners door to door and still be cool. It's my confidence. The way I hand out money like it's gum, the way I brush off authority figures, and you don't see my actions actually hurting anyone. So. But you stole from the government. Eh, normal people don't care about that. They care about me using my looks and charm to get the job done. Oh, and after the job, they look for the business card I leave behind. So how'd you get caught? Oh, look out, here comes the warden. Quiet, you crooks! You may have been living large on the outside, but you're in my world now. Sorry, Christopher Walken. You were saying? Well, eventually, I just couldn't stop. Every job had to be better than the last. You form patterns, you steal a little too much money from the wrong guy, and eventually, you get caught. When we stop being cool, when we can't maintain the lifestyle, when we get emotional, that's when we get busted. That sounds awful. And now you're doomed to a life behind bars. Hey, I told you two to keep it down. We're gonna be in here for a long time, so you better toe the line. Well, I won't be in here that long, Christopher Walken. What was that? You see, this might be what makes me the coolest crook ever, Christopher Walken. I never serve my full sentence. Eventually, the people who were chasing me need my help. They need a former accomplice, a behind-the-scenes look. They need me. I make a deal with them. All of a sudden, bada-bing, bada-boom, I'm out of prison. That is pretty cool, but does that really happen? Yeah, in movies all the time. So let me get this straight. You make high-stakes crime look easy, and even when you get busted, you still find a way out of prison. That's what I'm saying. Wow. What's your name again? Frank William Abagnale. My name is Frank William Abagnale. Anyway, what are you in for? Me? Oh, I uh, said that the Breakfast Club had issues on a podcast. Oh, new monster. I think Mitch has actually crawled under his desk at this point. <laughs> oh, Mitch, did we just ride this one off the rails? Yeah, that Is that was what happened? good. That was good. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Forrest. Oh, that was good. All right. Oh, gosh. Well, it looks like crime doesn't pay. Thank you for catching up with us as we discussed this modern classic. As we alluded to at the beginning of the episode, we will now be releasing new episodes every week. Thank you all so much for your support. And if this is your first episode, we invite you to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We can be found at the Is It Really Podcast. And if you haven't yet, subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're up to it, why not give us a rating and a review? We would really appreciate it. And we'll see you next time when we'll be discussing the 1973 Best Picture winner, The Sting. The Sting.